Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we are talking about what factors make films good because of course we tend to dunk on woke films and how we talk about how bad things are getting, how things are carbon copies or remakes but I think it'd be nice to actually talk about what makes them nice. We've done this for music before haven't we where we talked about what makes music good and now we're going to do the same for film. I only want to be negative, I just want to trash on movies and say why, why they're bad. Get, Get it out. all out of your system. Get it all out of your system right now. What's your least favourite film ever? Ah, oh, there are many. <laughs> There's too many. Me, me. I want to answer. Um, yeah. All right. I remember watching the film Magnolia, which is, you know, seen by critics as one of the best character acting dramas going. And it was three hours of utter teeth pulling. It's Paul Anderson, isn't it? It is, yeah. There Paul Thomas be, Anderson. Yeah, who did There Will Be Blood. But I thought it was boring pretentious and frustrating i've heard very mixed things about it like mm. like that but at least there will be blood that's a fantastic is one film. of the best films ever made and if we're going to mm. be positive let's start off with talking about something like that but there will be blood okay what what are some of our favorite films before we get going let's let's start okay who wants stelios first okay mm -hmm. so i would say that my i would put lord of the rings as number one i don't want yes. to i don't want to to discern between yeah all three one, of them all three of them it's like it's picking one. between children but yeah. also um the two towers yes um, let's not get into that let's not start any arguments <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. start okay. a punch and up. then i would say the gladiator <laughs> that's a great film yeah number two so that's good for uh, and then possibly uh aliens the sequel to alien mm. uh, i do i that's probably my favorite out of all of these sort of universe of of the alien franchise yes and it has huge rewatchability and the thing the Coming thing by john the carpenter walls, oh yeah the thing's fantastic yeah. Yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. although i will say having watched it only once but still it was a very impactful watch i do now prefer at the mouth of madness to the thing of john carpenter's work mm. and i suggested it to you did I yes, not? yes, yeah. you did. I'd already been thinking about watching it, but you reminded me. So yeah. thank you very that much. I gave for that. you four movies. Film. I think it's mm. your turn to. Me? Okay. Well, I think 2001: A Space Odyssey is my favorite. Mm. I've uh, got a very soft spot for Kubrick, as I'm sure we'll find as out. As everybody should. Yes. Um, I think the Lord of the Rings films are obviously some of the best. I read the books as a kid, so there's also that added nostalgia plus. They are fantastic. Um, another Kubrick pick, but Full Metal Jacket should be up there somewhere. I think it's probably my favourite war film going. Um, it's pretty high up there. What else is there? I quite like the film Seven. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, That's a good film. Um, <clears throat> I feel like I need to throw in a curveball, don't I? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's a and one of my favourite films of all time as well. That one doesn't tend to get picked very much, but as part of it is that... Especially it, of Gilliam's works, yeah. it's a bit of a mixed one for him, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. uh, and from what I've seen from other people as well. Mm -hmm. That's uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, who's one of the, the Pythons. And uh, yeah, I, I like that film largely because of the, the uh, great acting by Depp and Del Toro, but also the fact that there are lots of um, interesting... Um, editing and camera tricks that sort of portray the state of mind of both uh, the main characters on the various drugs they're taking and the sort of madness of it, the pointlessness of it. And there's a, it, it almost seems like it wasn't 
a film in a way because there's not really a clear plot. It's sort of chaos. I like that. Slightly controversial point. I, w- I will say something that will definitely make you think less of me. I've tried three times to watch a Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, most I did was 20 minutes. I-, I fall asleep every time. Could you not get past the intro sequence in prehistoric times? It just, yeah. Just grow up, evolve. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. still you're staring at prehistory going, evolve already, come yeah. on! <laughs> you must hate going to the zoo. <laughs> but no, um, to be honest, it actually took me um, a couple of times to watch a Space Odyssey because it's a slow burn and I fell asleep the first two times I tried to watch it. And on the third attempt, I watched it all the way through and loved it to bits. Okay, okay. So it, it's worth sticking with, but it is a slow I burner. I will at some point. And it's one yeah. of those films, it's a bit like, it's like the, the sort of film equivalent of Radiohead. You need a few listens or a few watches to really get into it. <laughs> really showing your hipster credentials right there. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm one beard away from being a hipster and, you know, I need the glasses and that's it. I collect records, I drink IPAs, um, I listen to music nobody's gay. heard of. Subtly gay? Yeah. What about overtly gay? <laughs> well, we've not got quite there yet. <laughs> get a few no, drinks uh, down you. Yeah. It's a- Harry, we haven't heard your yeah, that's top true. movies. Yeah. Uh, I will cover some trodden ground here and say, obviously, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm-hmm. extended versions. Of course. Anything um, less is blasphemy. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, I would also include The Shining there. I think that that's a great a, one. Yeah. As a standalone horror film, The Shining is perfectly constructed. I would say uh, there's not a moment wasted in that mm-hmm. whole film. Everything is as effective as it can be for creating the maximum tension. I think that's brilliant. Uh, here's a curveball. Hot Fuzz is definitely mm-hmm. one of my favorite films of I all like time. I like Hot Fuzz, but I wouldn't rank it among my favorites. As a pure comedy, as well as incorporating the action and thriller elements, I think it's amazing. Um, I will also throw in... As a mainstream film, I'm going to say the first three Pirates of the Caribbean films. They are good. Are I'll give three you of my favorite action adventure mm-hmm. films ever made. And mm-hmm. I can't really differentiate between them because the first one's perfect, but also the other two as a duo of films are perfect and round out the story that the first one set up. I think the second one is probably my favorite out of those because I like the Kraken as a sort of mm. anti-hero this sort of unspoken unseen behemoth beneath the waves and the music for the kraken is fantastic yeah like the dum 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 like that in the background so menacing i'm also going to throw out um the recent well the first three films of robert eggers i was going to mention robert eggers a very new filmmaker who is probably the only filmmaker I'm interested in who's been putting out new works, new and original works in the past 10 years. I think he's fantastic and I can't wait to see what he does with his um, Nosferatu remake, which is going to be really interesting. And because it's me, I have to. Basically all of David Lynch's works, (laughs) post and including Blue Velvet, are basically perfect, even if Inland Empire is one of the most confusing films I've ever seen in my life. I even and it's like very Dune. difficult. I do like Dune. I think Dune gets a bad rap, although I will say... Dune. Yeah, from, from the three-quarter point or two-third point onwards, it really, you can see where they had to cut out like two hours of the film, and mm-hmm. it gets really, really rushed, which is a shame, because otherwise it would have been a masterpiece. 
Yeah, I love. Can you imagine if he had chosen, as he was offered to do, to direct Return of the Jedi? Oh, and he chose Dune instead. We're in the wrong universe. We need to go to a parallel universe where this happened. I need to see David Lynch's Jabba the Hutt. I I would trade it all in to watch that David Lynch Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, those are those Mm -hmm. are my picks. I know I picked quite a few, but there's such a broad breadth to film and especially quality film that I think just narrowing it down to one is narrowing yourself a bit too much. Josh, you said that uh, Mm -hmm. you were annoyed by some movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to hear also what Harry was annoyed. And I want to say, for instance, a movie I was very much annoyed with was Tenet by Christopher Nolan. I saw this in the cinema and I wholeheartedly agree with this. It was it was difficult to follow and not in a way where it's sort of artistic and interesting and complex. In a way that is just, I can't be bothered to invest my time and energy in following this, so I'm just going to watch it like a Michael Bay film in that it's just spectacle and you're not meant to switch your brain on. Very gratuitous. It was, yeah. yeah. And it was also a silly p- plot in that the the main character was basically risking the world to save this one woman who he'd just met. And there wasn't enough of an incentive for him to do that. So he was employed... I can't remember the exact plot because I only saw it once because it sucks. Um, <laughs> it, isn't he working for like an alphabet agency trying to save the world from I don't clashing... remember. I tried to erase it from my memory. Yeah, from like clashing timelines. In my, in my mind, it's that annoying film. Mm. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And on the point, I will say one of the worst things about films in general is that save for a fair, save for maybe a handful that I've seen, uh, the alphabet agencies in America, and this is included even in some of my favorite films and TV shows, are almost universally portrayed as being forces for good, which they are not. Twin Peaks, for example. Yes, sadly, Twin Peaks has that, which I forgive it because the rest of it is so wonderful. Also in Twin Peaks, though, Dale Cooper, the the, the excellent lawman, does get investigated by the FBI. For, for doing the right thing outside does, of regulation. Yeah. And, it's impl- and it's stated pretty much outright that the unit that you're following in Twin Peaks is kind of its own autonomous uh, part of the FBI that doesn't interact much with the rest of it. By the way, you know, lots of films are very, very guilty of that. For a film that really annoyed me, though, um, I'm going to go with... I don't know if either of you will have ever heard of it. It was a Netflix original film, Spanish language, called The Platform. Yes, I've watched it. It's tripe. Utter garbage. It is one of the worst things I've ever watched that was a complete waste of time. If you take the film as a literal linear narrative, nothing in it makes sense. Every character decision, every part of the world building of the universe that it establishes, even down to how the platform itself works, because it's a large tower block that has 666 floors. Oh my goodness, the symbolism where it has a large platform floating in between each of these floors and it has food on it and the people at the top they get more food and they try and get as much as possible and as it goes down people further and further down in this tower block get less and less food it's a prison block that you put inmates in but also you can volunteer to go in there for some reason there are humanitarian issues where people 
like journalists know what's going on in there, but also they volunteer to go in there. And in the course of the film, a, a journalist goes in so she can investigate it, thinks to herself, yeah, I'll be locked into a prison cell for a year with somebody who I don't know, who might be a murderer, who might just murder me. And I'm going to take my dog into this situation when we're in a situation where you know that you might have limited resources for food. So obviously somebody is going to eat your dog. Guess what happens? Somebody eats her dog. And Are you sure it's not set in China? It's just rubbish. It's rubbish. So if you take it as a literal narrative, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. Also, the, the worst has writing. some very funny scenes though. What you mean when the guy poos on another man's head? <laughs> okay, or, no, uh, that no, makes me want to see it. After all of that, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's like a five. It's it's like a mm. less than five second shot in a sea of turds. The whole film. Is I don't a giant need to watch turd. it. I have Swindon Town Centre. It's fine. Yeah, and then. If you take it as a metaphorical narrative, if you take it from something that's supposed to be interpreted, it is the most on-the-nose, hammer-to-the-face subtle kind of metaphor for, ooh, capitalism is when the bigwigs at the top get more and the people at the bottom are just fighting for scraps and everybody ends up down in hell. But the Pentecost is a message. Mm -hmm. Remember. Whoever, whoever wrote that quit. Quit. You deserve to be working in a McDonald's kitchen as the cleaner. Please, stay away from film forever. Netflix, you greenlit it. I know you've greenlit some pretty sus stuff in the past, but please, shut down your entire service for putting that on my recommended feed. I know you watch this, Netflix, so listen to him. But no, um, some things that I don't like. Anything with a superhero in it, other than the Christopher Nolan Batman films, is an avoid for me. Anything that's a remake of an already good film. Um, that... The most unnecessary kinds of remakes. Yeah. If you're going to remake something, remake something that sucked and make it good. Yes. Like, you didn't even need to remake The Wicker Man. The original's fantastic. You remade it. Sorry, and made it you rough. had to do it. I, I will you at had least, to do it. I'll make an exception for that. And yeah. to be fair, we did just mention Robert Eggers. He's remaking Nosferatu, which was good, but I'm excited to see mm -hmm. a different interpretation. Yeah, but and I know that he's going to bring something to yeah. the table, right? I, mean, I I like Nicolas Cage as an actor, it, but in that remake, it lost all of its charm <laughs> that made the original good. Yes, but it's so it, bad it that gained, it's but good. It, but it gained a new, different yeah. kind of charm, which is Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage, Trying Weekend, to avoid Bernie, bees. We, Weekend <laughs> at Bernie's, that film, and made a mockery of it. <laughs> That's what he did. But he does at one point dress up as a bear and punch a woman in the face. <laughs> I can but, do that myself yeah. if I want to. Do you remember the Nicolas scene Cage. with the bees? Yeah, that's a deleted Everyone's scene. That's that the funniest that's scene. Not, that's not even in the in the main cut of the film. That's a deleted scene. That, <laughs> despite being deleted, was so funny that it still became famous. Mm -hmm. So let's actually get on to the content of what makes films good, I suppose, although we have obviously touched on it somewhat. And that I think the first thing and the primary thing is writing and storytelling. I think that's indisputable, really. That's very important. You know, movies are meant to tell a story. They're meant to have a narrative. If they do not, people tend to be confused. In fact, it tends to be like an art house film or something. I've already very mentioned strange. Inland Empire. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. actually happy for films that have, at best, threadbare plot, mm -hmm. as long as the other cinematic techniques that it's using to convey mood and uh, atmosphere Mm -hmm. are effective enough but yes generally you want a story yes so i think it needs to be quite well structured um but not always like i like a film 
I, like I mean, films one like, of your favourites, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And... That's not particularly well structured, but then that plays into the rampant drug abuse in the film, and so the chaos of it elevates the tone of the film. Or you get things like The Big Lebowski, where you know there's there's a narrative, there's a story, there's a plot, but nothing really happens, nothing's really resolved. Everything kind of ends up back where it was, but that, I I that, like that because that also reflects the the vibe of the film. That also there there is an argument to say that that reflects reality probably a lot more than mm. a typical structured narrative because the typical structured narrative has resolutions, it has endings, whereas in real life you you don't. Mm -hmm. although, yeah, but other than very few situations, you don't. Obviously, as a storytelling experience, it can come across very unsatisfying. But with The Big Lebowski, it was used more as a framework to have zany scenarios and comedic situations. Yeah, I, I thought it worked really well. And because the, the sort of vibe of the main character, the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, is kind of laid back and he's sort of got this Eastern philosophy thing, everything kind of circling back to where it began sort of ties in quite nicely with the ethos that he has towards life. That, you know, things don't change in the grand scheme of things, man. That sort of thing. But um, Stelios, you seem to have something to add. No, no, I really like the, the big Lebowski. And mm -hmm. I genuinely like uh, Jeff Bridges. Oh, he's, he's a fantastic he's great, actor. Yeah, yeah. and uh, just, I, I don't know if this is a bit tangential, but I think one of the most interesting phenomena is the old Tron. Mm. Oh, with yeah. Jeff Bridges and I think that's really weird because as far as I'm concerned it's a movie whose concept is so far ahead its time that uh, it ended up being really badly portrayed in the first movie mm. I mean you, you can't it's unwatchable but it's unwatchable <laughs> In, 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 right, in a good sense. I've got a, f a funny story to, about that, which is that my dad, as a child, always went on about Tron because my dad's really old. So he, it was groundbreaking for him when it first came yeah. out. Like it was groundbreaking for so many to see CGI used in a film yeah. like that. And to be fair, I will give it one thing: it worked within the limitations of CGI that they had at the time to create a really distinctive visual style, where the art style of it, I think, transcends the limits. Uh, so I think parts of it still look quite good, but when I eventually got around to watching it, I was about 13 years old, it was the most boring film I think I'd they ever seen. They didn't have the means to portray the, the idea well, I think, at that point. I know I uh, sort of complained about remakes, but I did quite enjoy the remake of Same. Tron. It, it wasn't yeah. a remake, it was a sequel. Tron, oh, was it really? Tron Legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. right. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was a, Shows it, how it much was, I know. It was it? one of those sequels that comes 30 years after the original, but I think this might be the one time when it was justified because the technology had caught yeah. more mm -hmm. with the initial yeah. idea. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I think you'll all agree with me on is plot holes ruin pretty much any film that they're in. They like, certainly can do. The Star Wars sequels, you know, lots of plot holes in them, as well as lots of other things as well. Mm. Like, well, uh, that 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 one one of those other things being overt and terrible political messaging. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that a film can't have a political message to it, even something that the entire film is centered around. But 
when it comes down to the characters are literal embodiments of modern political talking points, or even as we get less and less subtle as the years go on, we get to the point where a character will almost look straight into the camera and address the audience and tell them exactly what they're thinking and what they should believe. There's That's a reason awful writing. people don't break the fourth wall in conventional filmmaking. It's because it breaks the illusion that you're watching a film and you shouldn't do it unless you know it's it's like a comedy and it's meant to be irreverent and not taken seriously in yeah. the first place of course and and to be fair when it comes to plot holes even though one of my big problems with the platform was that it's full of plot holes it's swiss cheese is what that plot is made from um i can forgive inconsistencies and a few slip-ups here and there as long as the film is still emotionally resonant because i think what we're getting at is that a story needs to be emotionally resonant because yes. stories are for people and so they need to reflect people they need to be an expression of um of somebody's authorial artistic intent mm -hmm. and not an expression of how much the investors want returns on their their investment yes and i think one of the big problems is that the storytelling really is an art it's the art of being able to express the human condition and human emotion and artistic intent through a narrative and through characters and one of the most important parts of writing that is to have characters that are different from one another and relatable and have their own voice and one of the problems with modern filmmaking that i'm referring to here when i say that they might as well just look in the camera is that lots of characters all speak in the same voice these days because the writers mm. are not skilled enough to be able to come up with people who they can put down on the page and let the character guide them when you read somebody uh fantastic authors and writers talk about the creative process they they create this character that's so full and three-dimensional but that by the time you're maybe a few episodes in or a few pages into writing the script it's like the character is guiding them along with the actions because it would only make sense for this character in this situation to act in that way and that's why you could say that writing the act of inspiration it's almost like there is an authorial hand outside of yourself from well, time yeah. to time, um, guiding one... you through that inspiration. What? Like an example, just to finish off the point, sure. would be um, Rust in the first series of True Detective. He is one of the most well-fleshed-out characters I've ever seen in any television show or film. And I can only imagine his character in the situations that he's put in behaving in that way, speaking in the way that he does. He's not just a blank slate for the author to spew nonsense onto. He feels like you could pluck him out and put him in the real world. Mm. One thing that kind of stuck with me was I saw an interview with George R. R. Martin and obviously mm. he's not a filmmaker um, but he said you, you basically build the world and then just kind of deduce what your characters would do you don't think oh I want them to have this confrontation or you know I want them to do this that or the other you create the characters with certain personality traits and just kind of mentally throw them in the ring and see what happens if you will and I think that that's the way the um, writers should approach story writing in this sense. And that's where you end up with some stories where you get major plot contrivances when the characters don't behave in the way that they should, yes. simply because the author has the desire to put them in a situation that ends up feeling artificial. Mm. What a lot of writers 
will end up doing. And I, once again, this is something I've read in many interviews where they say the initial inspiration for a film or a character is you get this idea in your head of one really cool scene, one really interesting thing that happens. And then the way to get to that isn't that you just write whatever nonsense will get you there. You have to construct something that will logically flow to get you to that point. And a lot of writers and filmmakers don't do that anymore. They just want to get to the good stuff. They want to get to the money shot, but they don't want to build to it. Where all the superheroes are fighting the villains and it's all <laughs> a big battle with lots of CGI explosions. Let me add something. When it comes to plot holes, and feel free to tell me if I haven't exactly understood the, the issue, but it seems to me that when we're talking about plot holes, there are all sorts of things that could go wrong with the plot. And sometimes, if uh, what we are seeing doesn't make sense, it can be portrayed in a good way, but it can also be portrayed in a horrific way. And the example that comes to mind is the at least as far as I see it, the distinction between Last Action Hero by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Deadpool. Now, I'm going to say something that may um, frustrate some, uh, some people, but I think Last Action Hero is, in a sense, a very postmodern film. And it, if you compare it with conventional films, you do say it's full of plot holes, but it is given in a way that it's nice and it is self-referential in a in a subtle way whereas deadpool has all sorts of absurdities and uh, it goes over the top where he constantly looks at the camera and he says i'm in a movie where it's it's self-referential but not in a subtle way it's like saying i'm in a movie no things don't make sense they're not supposed to make sense mm. it, it does this make sense Yes, yes, I, I okay. agree with what you're saying. I would say that Deadpool, and this is a fault in a lot of the comic books as well, yeah. um, post-90s Deadpool comic books, they fall into the family guy trap of just assuming that if I point out that here is a modern reference that you will understand if you are watching this contemporarily, or if I just point out that I'm in a television show or a movie, the audience is expected to laugh. It's almost like it's applying social pressure to you that I've not made a joke, I've yeah. just made you aware of something and you should at least chuckle at it. Just out of politeness. S sorry, I, ju I just couldn't find it funny or no, couldn't relate to it. No, yeah. it's not It's kind of tedious and, and, and it's... It's it, annoying. It's not even low-hanging fruit. It's like picking rotten fruit off the ground. Yeah. It's just annoying. Yes. <laughs> so um, another thing to do with writing and storytelling is interesting characters. And two um, directors who I think do this quite well um, are Wes Anderson and the Coen brothers. Mm. They always have very memorable characters. Um, I think, well, um, doesn't, sorry. In The Big Lebowski, doesn't Jesus, doesn't he only show up in two scenes? Yes. And yet he's incredibly memorable mm -hmm. because of how weird he is in those scenes. <laughs> there's, there's a few ways to make a memorable character. There's the ways mm -hmm. where we talk about like a Rust Cole who's incredibly fleshed out and fascinating and you want to learn more about him. And then there is coming up with somebody who is really weird. But I'd say the way to make that work is to make them feel weird in an authentic way. David Lynch also does it well, doesn't he? Yes. The he word does. weird triggered my recollection of his work. <laughs> it was <work>. very Lynchian. <laughs> yeah, he, the, the, he does lots of weird characters, and the Coen brothers do lots of weird characters, mm. but they're weird in a way that feels authentic and real. Yeah, weird they've in the got way sort of idiosyncrasies that you can imagine an actual person having. It's not just 
oh, look at how weird this person is that has this quirk that you've never seen in life. Yeah, they feel weird in a way that feels correct for the eccentric weirdo who lives at the end of the road. Mm. Whereas, in contrast, M. Night Shyamalan makes very weird characters in all of his films that feel completely unnatural. This character is just obsessed with, I don't know, milk cartons or something. That's his one character trait. And that's the thing about making weird characters. They can't just be that one character trait. You they, mean a one-dimensional character is not interesting? Yeah, they can't just be that. Just having them be weird by itself isn't enough. I think it has to do with how iconic some scenes are. Because, mm. okay, this may be a so sort of a cheating example because it's from a book. But I think that uh, in Silence of the Lambs, uh, Anthony Hopkins uh, plays just for 16 minutes. Mm. It's not the entire movie that mm. that uh, he appears on. Yet the char character is very central to the movie and every time he appears, it just makes the most out of all these seconds. I think he, his fantastic acting, though... Um, yeah, generally. It's not really just Really carries the well, role. That, yeah. well, I'm sure we'll get onto the acting. But that's we are, all that's part the, of the, the thing that, after the writing and yeah, storytelling. It's, it's all part of the package, isn't mm. it? It needs to come into a, a holistic um, yeah. a package. Mm-hmm. What about the aspect of character development as well? Because it's not essential. Sometimes you can have a character not change that much in a film, and it doesn't the necessarily dude, matter. for instance. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't learn anything. In mm -hmm. fact, that's a pretty common thing through Coen Brothers films, where the characters yeah. don't have an arc. They don't learn... No Country for Old Men is a great example, because they explicitly say at the end, well, um, wait, no. I'm, no, I'm you're thinking of Burn After Reading. You're right, yeah. What did we learn from this? I don't know. That is a Coen Brothers film, though, isn't it? It is. It's but, um, great. In No Country for Old Men, they're, they're talking about not knowing what to make of what has happened still. Mm. You know, uh, the, the well, old timer. the primary timer, character, yeah. the protagonist, dies three quarters of the way through the film. Off camera. Yeah. by Killed by somebody unrelated to the rest of the plot, mm. which is quite a brave move. I was very confused. I thought that the version of the film I downloaded had skipped something. <laughs> I, I, I can understand why you would think that. But um, yes, can either of you think of a good example of a sort of film that looks at character development? Because I think it certainly makes a film yeah. investing. Because Pulp Fiction. That's Barry true. Jules yeah. Winfield. Yeah, that's a good example. Mm. I think that's an interesting example with, um, you know, where he sort of uh, finds his religious path. Yes. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Yeah. Butch also has a character development as well, doesn't yeah. he? To a certain extent, in that he goes back and saves Marcellus Wallace from uh, the, 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 from the creepy dudes. Yeah. From Zed. That's the one, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think um, Pulp Fiction's a really good example as well, because Jules is informed by the framework of the plot around him as well, and from Tarantino's decision to uh, show the events in a non-linear order. So you can see the consequences of the life that Jules could have taken yeah. in what happens to Vincent. And then you see his decision at the end as rounding out the character development for himself. But also, if he were there, maybe Vincent would have, wouldn't have died. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.